Murdoch Mysteries podcast, where we go episode by episode and look at some of the historical references, contexts, technologies, doing research into this and that that are mentioned in the show. I am Ivy. I'm Kalinda. And this week we are doing episode five, Till Death Do Us Part. So, so how's it going? Good. Have a bit of a headache. It might be the ginger tea. I, I, I made some really strong tea. Can ginger tea give you headaches? I don't know. <laughs> but I think looking at a computer screen, screen is much more um, likely. Yeah, yeah, it's probably the blue light. But, you know, well, how are you doing? I have been, as I may have already told you, Kalinda, I've been watching a lot of Buffy. Oh, right. And you did tell me that. I'm pretty sure my mom is officially over pretending to be interested in what I have to say about Buffy. Because <laughs> I just have many thoughts. How is it treating you this rewatch? Um, Has it been nice? Well, I never appreciated the fashion. Mm -hmm. Fashion is fantastic. Also, so many things are happening so early. Like, I'm, I've just started season two. And already, I'm meeting Oz. Spike. Mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. like, I can't believe this happened so quickly. I don't remember. I don't know when I thought Oz was going to be introduced, but season two was not my guess. But yeah, I think season one is pretty special, actually. Like season two is what I would call like my preferred just because I love the angst, you know, angst of season two. Well, you don't know because you didn't finish season two. <laughs> Didn't I? Did you? I think we didn't. I was only going to make you watch. <laughs> of course, I make you watch everything. Um, <laughs> but I was, I think when we started watching it, I was like, you You at least have to watch to season two all the way. And I don't know if we actually finished it. That may have been back in. That was like 2000. High school. Seven. <laughs> yeah, no, but. Like ages ago. But in college i had friends who were really into buffy <gasps> you watched buffy in college without me i'm sure i've you probably knew about this and forgot i got yeah. up until college pretty much i don't know why i forget everything now <laughs> <laughs> i also like on rewatching, forgot that like spike eventually gets his soul and it's like how could you forget something <laughs> so basic but I was <laughs> I was like oh my god I completely forgot about this did that make it into my college thesis paper where I was comparing Angel and Spike did you literally and like I genuinely am not sure now and I'm like I'm pretty sure my teacher would have said something if I was so off base as to not Ivy. remember that Spike gets Ivy. his soul Ivy how did I not know you wrote a college thesis paper on Buffy <laughs> Well, How it did wasn't, I not know this? It wasn't specifically Buffy, but it was heavily Buffy. And it wow. was because I was taking this really great class. Well, it was called Vamps and Vampires. It was so fascinating. So amazing. I'm so glad I took it. So glad I got a spot in the class. Um, but a lot of the class was like, we've all seen Buffy. Like everyone in the class is like, yeah, we've seen <laughs> Buffy. We can talk about Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> this is what brought us all here. <laughs> well, I'm pretty sure other things like um, 
Well, what we actually had to read in class were things like Dracula and Anne Rice and um, some other like less, you know, ubiquitous pop culture. Like, I feel like maybe not everyone mm-hmm. in the class did see Buffy, but she was like, I don't have to put this on the curriculum because I'm assuming. <laughs> <laughs> you all know this in Twilight too. Like, we didn't have to yeah, read yeah. Twilight, but we definitely totally referenced it. But yeah, my thesis was <laughs> dumb. But if I had to do it <laughs> over again, I would write it just all about Spike and how Joss Whedon cheated with Spike because Spike doesn't fit the vampire archetype and mythology of his own world, and it bothers me. <laughs> mm. That was a huge problem with my paper. <laughs> I recently watched a video about the Twilight Renaissance and just how many people, particularly because of quarantine and different yeah. things, were falling back on the media that's like, that they like, but that is trashy. Kind of, yeah. That's just like a light comfort fluff. Yeah, definitely. That's why I'm watching murder mysteries all the time. Mm hmm. So many. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just yet another one. Oh, God. Yeah. A couple episodes ago, you were talking about how you were getting to the point with Murdoch Mysteries where you would watch an episode and then want to just keep watching. I had not reached that point until now. Yeah. I, I definitely watched this episode and was like, I want another. Mm-hmm. Is it... Do you think it's just because, like, you're, you're like, acclimated now? You're, like, in this world? Or is it something about this episode was more intriguing? I don't know. Because it could easily be the the former. Like, I'm not trying to, like... <laughs> no, some of it some press. of it was that I was getting into the world. But then some of it, I think, is also an understanding of the characters. But some of it, I think, is particularly it felt like the drama of understanding Murdoch. Mm-hmm. This episode yeah, and his Catholicism and different things really made me want to go like, I want to know more, want to see where this is going. Yeah, I think that was more it. Yeah. And I think we also get like in this, you know, we definitely are like, go Dr. Ogden. Like we just, there's, you know, it's like the first drop in the ocean of all the amazing things that she's about to do, right? And we're finally starting to really like get an appreciation for her. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's actually get into this episode. So the primary plot of this episode is that a man dies on his wedding day. So I'm in charge of the recap. So I'll go ahead. Yep, getting into some spoilers here. Nothing is sacred. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a wedding day. The brother and the mother of the groom ride up to the chapel, and a vagrant is begging outside the chapel. Thomas shakes his cane at him, threatening to beat him if he doesn't vacate. No lie. After that, I was immediately like, okay, he's the murderer, obviously. Like Same. Same. <laughs> he's, he's like, clearly not the good guy. <laughs> he's clearly got murderous intent written all over him. Um, yeah. He's just not a good guy. No. Yeah. Anyways, so... In addition to Mrs. Merrick and her son Thomas, which are the two people we just saw, we are introduced to Reverend Franks, the best man, Lawrence Braxton, the bride-to-be named Eunice McGinty, and Daisy, her bridesmaid. 
The wedding is in delay, and Thomas goes searching for Wendell, who is the bridegroom, to find him dead in the meeting room. Dun dun dun. When the team arrives, Dr. Ogden surmises he was killed by a blow to the head, leaving a clear right angle mark on his temple. Murdoch goes all Sean Spencer from Psych. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and immediately spots a large wooden cross to be the likely murder weapon. And Ogden says it's a perfect match, even though anything with a right angle would be a perfect match. Um, <laughs> a table, a box, a cane, the base uh-huh. of a candlestick, a picture frame. Like there's six different picture frames on one wall in that room. Anyways, it doesn't matter. It doesn't end up complicating the plot at all. Anyway, it turns out this cross doesn't even have a perfect right angle. It has an ornamental flared corner. Yep. But whatever. (laughs) In the end, it is still considered the murder weapon, even at the end of the episode. Anyways, whatever. It was funny. Suspend that disbelief. Murdoch also notices his pocket watch and cufflinks are missing, indicating a possible robbery. So we find out Eunice, his mousy bride, was new to Toronto after formerly being a lady's companion in Niagara Falls. Daisy met her at their church and introduced Wendell to her, crowing about how in love they were and uh, what a godsend godsend she was because Wendell was looking for a wife. But we quickly discover his best man had been arguing with him before the wedding because Lawrence didn't think Wendell should go through with the wedding because he didn't love Eunice. He was only going to do it for money. Wendell's inheritance stipulated that he be married before he could gain his half of the family company, the other half which his brother Thomas had already acquired. Uh, So we hear multiple mentions of Wendell being a gadabout and likely to screw up his own wedding, and his parents hoped a wife would set him straight to wink-wink because it turns out Wendell was gay. (laughs) Murdoch begins looking for who could have been Wendell's lover, because that's a likely motive. Lawrence Braxton and Reverend Franks both admit to knowing that he was gay, but Eunice says that he saw Reverend Franks kissing Wendell before the wedding. Well, spoilers, she's totally full of shit. Murdoch goes to confession and Mm -hmm. questions how to proceed, considering not just a citizen, but a man of the cloth might be gay. Of course, they're talking about it with a different word. I think it also, like, highlights the different ways they would have talked about this at the time, especially in the church. A lot of the time, you're just talking about the act itself, not the, like, adjective. Mm. So there's a bit of... A bit of dissonance happening, like, if we're going to start, like, talking about this plot or, like, trying to explain this plot that, like, I think Murdoch, whenever he is using certain words, he's referring to the act itself. Anyways, carrying on. His priest tells him the Bible is clear. It's an abomination. He uses the typically misapplied text, but, but I'm kind of surprised that they're both more concerned about the gay part like, whether or not this priest might be gay than they are about the fact that he would have been breaking his celibacy vows if he had been Wendell's lover. Like, because mm. one is just a sin, and the other one is, like, breaking an oath, right? I don't know. Mm. They weren't concerned with that, but obviously they were, like, watering everything down to fit in, like, 45 minutes, whatever. Anywho, to look for the missing lover, 
Murdoch goes undercover to a tennis club where gay men unofficially meet in what is genuinely the most embarrassing few minutes of television history. Yep. The station house puts him in an outfit that makes him look like one of the three musketeers. And britches, like of all things. I don't... It's so funny. <laughs> it's... It's... Oh, I hate it. Um, I don't know if there's some semblance of historical accuracy, but it looked completely out of time to me. Um, yeah. But whatever. I don't like to think about it. So Murdoch goes to this tennis club and starts talking to a man named Jeffrey, who he takes in for questioning. He refuses to out Reverend Franks until Brackenreed takes over the interrogation and beats it out of him. They find out Reverend Franks is gay, but is not Wendell's lover. His best man, Lawrence Braxton, is. When Murdoch goes to question Braxton, he has already killed himself. Mrs. Braxton confesses to knowing her husband's disposition and insists there's no way he could have killed Wendell because they were in love. Brackenreed thinks the suicide is as good as the confession. They find the vagrant, who the victim's brother Thomas mentioned with the stolen pocket watch and cufflinks. Once they tell the suspect that he's there in a murder inquiry, not just theft, the vagrant identifies Thomas as the man who threw the valuables out the church window. Thomas denies, 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 like the worm that he is. And after Murdoch explains that finger marks, first little, like, verbal mention of finger marks, Mm -hmm. um, that they could be found on the pocket watch and cuffs to verify whether or not he touched them. Thomas says that he found the body and removed the items to deter the investigation away from his brother's homosexuality, admitting that the whole family knew, but the knowledge becoming public would ruin the family. And Murdoch is a little like, you're so dumb. Well, not really like that, not firmly, but he's kind of like, your priorities aren't right here. (laughs) So Murdoch redirects his investigation as he feels Braxton wouldn't have killed Wendell out of jealousy for getting married as he was already married himself. Murdoch talks to Jeffrey again, unofficially, and learns that Wendell knew very little about Eunice and would have married anyone to get his mother off his back. Murdoch goes to Niagara Falls to speak to the woman Eunice used to work for, a Mrs. Schreier. It turns out Eunice McGinty is dead, and the bride-to-be is actually named Bridget Klein, a wanted con artist. So Murdoch returns to Toronto to visit the imposter who is on her way out and is like, the jig is up. And she's like, okay, you got me. She confesses Thomas and her cooked up the whole plan for Thomas to gain his brother's half of the company. But Thomas ruined everything by impulsively killing his brother when Wendell told him he was calling off the wedding. Murdoch asks where Thomas is, and she says he's in the other room. She's given him an overdose of heroin. So, thoughts, comments, questions? Just gnarly characters. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm also kind of, like, surprised at how quickly she caved. Like, she was all ready to go. She could have conned her way some more. She just sits down and is like, okay, I'll tell you everything. I mean, him already in the place where in the other room, there's going to be a, there's about to be a dead body. Mm -hmm. And he knows her real name. Yeah, I guess she can't, can't do much. I think at that that point, she's pretty aware, like, all right, fine. Jig is up. Yeah, that just spoke to me. Of the kind of person who would steal someone's identity. Like, sure. It's like, ah, uh, well, I'm caught. Okay, fine. Well, you know that what didn't I mean? work. 
was worth a shot. Yeah. And there's also the suggestion that she killed the real Eunice McGinty to gain her identity as well. Yeah, she's got like a bit of a sociopathy kind of, you know? Mm-hmm. So to me, it was like, no regrets kind of thing, right? Yeah. No guilt. And then, of course, there's also the um, the subplot going on of Murdoch's uh, questioning of his of his faith or how how homosexuality complicates um, what he has been taught, yeah, etc. Yeah, he just he just doesn't get it. Like it takes him a long time to understand or to even contemplate the idea that the two of them were in love. Yeah, although it is clear that, like, I would say, like, maybe two-thirds of the way in, his perspective seems to change, like, throughout 40 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. The way he talks to different people. He changes his language depending on who he's talking to. Yes, he does. So, like, if he's talking to his own priest or even Reverend Franks, he uses certain language. And then when he's talking to Lawrence Braxton, he changes his language, right? Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like he has any personal issue with it, that it's only based in his, like, religious education. That he, you know, he doesn't think that, like, it warrants legal issue. Sure, yeah. And at the end, the the priest seems kind of... Yeah. Like, upset with him? Well, okay, so a couple things, like, at the end, first of all, like, I don't know if Bracken Reed was initially supposed to be written as sort of a bad guy. I just cannot, he doesn't change. <laughs> he doesn't stop beating people up for, inter- like, in interrogations. It's, it's not a good look. I don't know. No. No, it's really not. It's never gonna be something I stop being like why but then we are he just is a mainstay character we are supposed to listen to him and like him I just, just whatever but even Brackenreed, you know his view is like oh maybe things will change but that's not our job right and I kind of find like I don't know if this is just like the writers kind of taking a bit of liberty with like realism where it's like why would Brackenreed see things like that like Brackenreed and Father Connolly, I think, is the one that Murdoch actually goes to confession to. Both of them, when he talks to them, he discusses, like, a future where things will be better or more accepting. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if he's talking to Brackenreed, Brackenreed could be like, oh, yeah, maybe things will be different. But we are just, we are just doing our job today the best we can, right? Whereas... Mm-hmm. The priest also talks about the future. Like, when Murdoch says that he imagines, a fu- uh, like, a time where there will be more compassion and enlightenment, then the priest almost sort of, like, starts to agree with him. And it's like, that's not how it works. Like, the church doesn't believe that sins change <laughs> in time. Right? Yeah. Um, no. So I don't know what they were kind of, I don't. I don't know if they were just kind of, like, Trying to be a little bit meta with it to be like a, we know in the future things change. That it's like a nudge to the audience rather than an actual like realistic way that conversation would have gone. But it is significant that Murdoch says like, I like, I don't remember if this actually like leads to much more or if this is just encased in this episode where Murdoch says, I can't 
just um, follow blindly mm. in in situations like this where he's seeing more harm than good from these kinds of beliefs. Anyways, but yeah, so the ending, if you didn't see this episode or if it was a while ago, it does end where, you know, Murdoch's concern was about whether or not to out this other priest to yeah. his um, congregation in the church. So the hit Father Connolly asks him what he decided to do. And Murdoch says that he said nothing. And then, I mean, it's sort of an ambiguous ending where Father Connolly doesn't really respond like he sort of is like huh and then closes the confessional um division divider whatever yeah you know if you're catholic yeah. you know <laughs> i don't know um i'm not catholic myself so i don't know what the official terms of those things are <laughs> but uh but the implication i think like from a visual language perspective is probably that like the priest probably would have liked to know that there was some judgment there. Yeah. Something. That there was there was definitely judgment. And yeah, to me he seemed like kind of upset. Like miffed. Yeah, yeah. that he seemed upset that that that's what he decided to do. Ugh. I looked up because I was curious about homosexuality in Canada, particularly the legality. Mm-hmm. I found that same-sex sexual activity was deemed lawful in Canada on June 27th, 1969. Hmm. How does that compare to the rest of the world? Like, I don't really know oh, if I that don't know. means anything. <laughs> I know. It just, to me, it seems like so freaking late. But a lot of what yeah. it said when I was looking it up was that for the most part, they didn't like to convict it was illegal, but it was actually pretty rare to actually be brought to court or some different things for it. Yeah. It's not really, like, a worthwhile thing to pursue. Yeah. And most of it was also... And it's, like, hard to prove. ...centered on men. On, like, of course. Men on men. Gross indecency between men was, like, the literal phrasing that was used that mm -hmm. when they finally made it legal. It's like, hello... You know, there are there there are ladies who like ladies. Oh, well, I no, think, no, 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 not possible. <laughs> well, it has more to do with. Uh, I uh, not to get like too, what like original you, sin. Well, it, it had uh, no. I mean, if we're talking about like the act, right? People were uncomfortable with the idea of penetration, right? That that was mm. the not to get like too. <laughs> what what in the butt. <laughs> straight up with this but like <laughs> but so like it, it, women doing stuff people weren't even like first of all i think some people didn't even think that it was possible right yeah women have their own sexual desires and then like especially in like if you're talking about it in the church it is also more to do with penetration so mm. like i'm not sure i don't know <laughs> Stop asking me these questions, Kalida. <laughs> but I think that that's kind of like why it focuses more on the men. Mm. But yeah. Yeah, I had never heard the term gad about. I meant to look it up and then forgot. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about it. Gad about. Well, I'll just do it right now. There were a lot of 
<laughs> names thrown around to allude to gay men. Yes. Some of them I was like, oh God, I wonder where this, the origin, what's the origin story there? Oh, okay. A gadabout is a habitual pleasure seeker. That makes sense. And that mm. could mean anything. Yeah. It's very open-ended, very useful. But yeah, so, I mean, some of them were confusing. Mandrake? Yeah, Mandrake was one that was used a lot. And I meant to look it up, but all I could find was like, yes, this is what some people call, yes, that is what it means. And I'm like, no, but tell me why. <laughs> Oh my god, but why? But why, though? Oh my god, I still can't find it. <laughs> oh, I'm just finding more slang words for gay people. There are so many. <laughs> Can people chill out? <laughs> okay. Ooh, the mandrake is poisonous. Having emetic and narcotic properties. And if you've seen Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, you also know mandrakes look very much like humanoid figures. From what I can tell, I think calling them mandrakes is um, <laughs> is referring, is, is like a phallic reference. Oh. From what I can tell. On my, a swift little Google search right here and now. I did not do deep research on this, but I think it's just a reference Because it's to... like a branching carrot. Yeah, probably. Why not just call them carrots? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. So we also get um nice little headbutting between Ogden and Murdoch, mm -hmm. where Ogden is kind of like, Murdoch, stop being so Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah and you know she makes a really good point which is that many species exhibit what she refers to as omnisexual behavior that was one thing mm -hmm. i remember um you know kind of like reconfiguring my perspective on it as well of being like oh my god it's that totally why wouldn't they of course <laughs> like this mm -hmm. why would it just of course because um apparently Swans are often in homosexual pairings, and they will be like, we're a gay little couple, we need to find a woman swan, and then mm -hmm. we will seal the baby. <laughs> and then they're like, we're two dads, swan dads over wow, here. Do they really? Gonna... Yeah, because swans the are, um, I think they're monogamous species. So like, and of course, penguins, we've heard the stories about the penguins. I don't know why I can only oh, think yeah. of birds. But no, I feel like I can mostly think of birds as well, of just like weird or interesting polyamorous even relationships yeah. with birds. There was some chart I'm sure I saw on Tumblr how many years ago <laughs> that was just going through all of these different kinds of bird relationships. Mm -hmm. That was cool. They don't have rules. They're birds. No, they don't care. Which is why Murdoch is like, but those are, you know. But we are human. <laughs> yeah. And Ogden's like, yeah, we're also animals. Thank you, Darwin, for <laughs> confirming. Thank you. Throwback. All right, so Kalinda, what did you do your topic on this week? I did fingerprints. Classic. You know. 
just a thing we all have. Yeah, but it's also cool in Murdoch that, like, that's a trick up his sleeve that he has. Most of the people he's, like, investigating don't even know what fingerprints are. No. And interestingly enough, like, it's so, like, I I find this really dumb. So, throughout ancient history, we see that people are aware of fingerprints being unique. In ancient China... There were officials who authenticated government documents using their fingerprints. Oh my god. During the reign of King Hammurabi in Babylon, which I think was 1300-ish BC, uh, there were law officials who would take fingerprints of people who had been arrested. And then in 200 BC, fingerprints were also, again, in Babylon used for contracts. Ancient Indians used thumbprints to predict past, present, and future, right? Not just palmistry, but specifically looking at thumbprints. So it seemed like they would keep records and they would then be able to authenticate whether or not certain people had, quote-unquote, signed a document by looking and double-checking their fingerprints, right? Now I am literally just staring at my fingers. (laughs) There was clearly some understanding that they were unique, but then it goes in and it starts talking about, you know, in Europe, all of the quote-unquote first times that people, like, were actually doing these things. And it's like, people have known for millennium. Okay, you're not just so special because you're from Germany, okay? (laughs) It wasn't until, like, the 17th and 18th century that there were Germans and other Europeans who began to, like, catch on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so then... In 1840, there was a doctor, Robert Blake Overton, who wrote to Scotland Yard suggesting they check for fingerprints after the murder of Lord William Russell. So after a specific person. So clearly, there's some knowledge or understanding the fingerprints are a thing. And in 1886, a man, Henry Falds, who was a Scottish surgeon offered the concept of using printing ink to record fingerprints for identification to the Metropolitan Police in London and was dismissed. (gasps) They didn't want it. They didn't want to hear it. Oh, my God. Which I'm just like, like, what? Like, how is it taking so long? There are all these doctors who are doing research on this, and it's just like all of these police departments are like, eh. Whatever, nah, our tactics work. <laughs> wow. Me being Bracken Reed. You know? <laughs> exactly. And so now we're getting close to our timeline for the show. And Francis Galton published a book in 1892 called Finger Prints. It's two different words. About the statistics of fingerprint analysis and identification and calculated that the chance of a false positive two people having the same fingerprint, was about one in 64 billion. Whoa. Dude, why? Why are they all different? Yeah. I don't know. Like, what could it be? I mean, the ridges are essentially just, like, for friction. Right. And I don't, I think, like, not a lot of other animals have that the way that we do. I think humans are sort of the only ones who have that fingerprint like that. Uh, So... 1892, in that same year, an Argentine chief police officer, whose name I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try, began recording fingerprints of individuals on file. 
for the department. And then in that same year, there was a woman, uh, Francisca Rojas, who was found with neck injuries and her two sons dead with their throats cut. Uh, And they blamed the neighbor, or she was trying to blame it on the neighbor. They were really investigating the neighbor. And the neighbor was like, it was not me. And so an inspector went to the scene and found a bloody thumb mark on the door and it matched the mother and she confessed to killing her two kids. Plot twist. Except, of course, I saw that coming. (laughs) But so that was in 1892. And it's funny, when I was looking it up and trying to find some of these records, something in the Smithsonian was like, this is the first ever case of fingerprints being used in trial. And that's like 1910. Oh my god. Just so many years later. And I'm like, what? Because clearly they were being used as evidence, just maybe not Maybe not in, in a trials. trial. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. But but that's, I think, one of the... F- and there's some other cases that each call themselves, like, the first case of, you know, going from identification to conviction of a murder. But it seems like a lot of places, you know, had freaking caught on. It just took forever for the U.S. <laughs> and England to get their act together. Uh, Yeah, it was finally in 1901 that Scotland Yard began fingerprinting individuals and creating, like, criminal records that way. And the U.S. started soon after. So a bit about how they match fingerprints. Um, I don't know a ton of the details. It's pretty in-depth. You have to have a certification and all this stuff. Um, But it seems like what they do is they match a certain number of identification points on the fingerprint Mm -hmm. and there has to be a certain number before it's accepted and in england it's 16 in france it's 12 and the u.s just doesn't have a uniform standard so that's great oh grand (laughs) get on it and typically there is something called the one dissimilarity doctrine where if there is one dissimilarity they are not from the same person Hmm. that they can if it's dissimilar at all then they're not the same person. Because there can be such minute differences between people that they sort of have to they have to do that. Which can mean that if they only get a partial print, there's the potential for false positives for overlap mm-hmm. if they don't yeah. get a whole print. But with a lot of the standards, it, they're doing a pretty good job, it seems like. Even though there's controversy, but there hasn't been a lot of studies about it, actually. So, But recently, so when you go to get a fingerprint off of something in the act of getting that fingerprint mm-hmm. it seems like it that it destroys some of the dna like it uses it potentially yeah or it, or it becomes active with something to show up i i don't totally understand but they can't use it for dna analysis mm-hmm and then if they do try to use it for DNA analysis, they end up smudging it so they can't use it for fingerprint analysis. Yeah. Well, I think, like, even you remember, like, science lab where it's, like, to determine, like, what the chemical makeup of something is. Some Like, usually you are destroying it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, mm-hmm. if you just have, like, a tiny minuscule swab of grease that someone left behind, like, yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. But so... Recently, there's some new technology 
called a scanning Kelvin probe, which can record the fingerprint without making physical contact with it. So that that way they can record it and then also take um, DNA, take a sample for a DNA analysis. Yeah. And something else that is wild is that the oils and some of the dead skin cells, just from a fingerprint, they can actually see certain chemical residues. So like if you're a smoker, there are certain chemicals that are secreted through the oils of your skin that they can see in a fingerprint. See, this is the type of stuff when I see it on like NCIS, I'm like, I don't think they, I don't think that they could really do that. Like, what? <laughs> that is Isn't bananas. That bonkers. Yeah. They're similarly looking for um, other drugs that could, that they can see whether or not you have high caffeine or cannabis or some different things mm-hmm. from a fingerprint. Yeah, but it's not that they're necessarily checking for the substance itself, because that would potentially just mean you handled it. They're actually checking for the byproducts of your metabolism metabolizing it. Ew. They're checking for those kinds of chemicals. Hmm. So. I just thought that was so freaking cool. Well, I didn't even know that you could get DNA from a fingerprint. I thought you could get a fingerprint from a fingerprint. (laughs) Right? I guess, yeah. I don't totally know how reliable it is, how much you can get from it, but there are some dead skin cells, I guess. But yeah, there's there was so much more about fingerprints generally, but that was some of the stuff that I just thought was real cool. Yeah. So that's me. What, Ivy, what did you do this week? I did heroin. Yes. I'm so excited. I'm a little nervous. Actually, because they mentioned in the episode about heroin being like a wonder drug, right? Like yeah. it's a new thing, which immediately made me go like, oh, ooh. I know. And you're also like, my initial thing was like, how new can it be? Because mm. I mean, maybe it's like just starting to be used, you know, by like pharmacies and stuff. But it's like, mm. I know that it's derived from like opium, and so it's like, that's been around for ages. But anyways, obviously I did research on it and I <laughs> found some stuff out. Cool, I'm excited. Okay, so heroin is an opioid drug derived from morphine, which itself comes from the opium poppy seed, as I said. The medical pure version is diamorphine, whereas street heroin often has some processing derivatives, including um, when you metabolize it, you also, a byproduct, is something called 6-MAM, which is obviously an abbreviation for a much longer scientific name. I didn't write down. (laughs) But, uh, so it has a bunch of names. The kind of, like, more scientific ones are diamorphine, diacetylmorphine, morphine diacetate, those are all basic. It's all the same thing, and mm. it's also more like colloquially can be called H, horse smack skag, junk brown and dope, and I felt really stupid because I was like, oh, dope is heroin. I thought dope was marijuana, <laughs> and it turns out. I mean, same. I think I thought dope was just anything. Yeah. So apparently, people who use marijuana call heroin dope 
and people who don't use marijuana call marijuana dope. Wow. Um, but also, dope can pretty much refer to anything because... It's so stupid, I had to read this, and I was like, of course, of course. Dope is just short for dopamine. And so anything that gives you what? dopamine... Dope is short for dopamine, not for dopey? Uh, that's what I thought! <laughs> that's why I thought marijuana... <laughs> that's what I thought, but yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, maybe when they wrote uh, dopey, they knew that. Maybe? Does dopey come from dopamine? Well, I don't know. Snow White... The Disney movie was from, like, the 60s, right? Maybe even earlier? And Dopey is, you know, the sort of happy, sleepy... Yeah, he's the Dopey one. Uh But who knows? I mean, someone probably knows. We don't care. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) So, uh... I think the other thing is that there's a lot of, like, names that refer to it being white, and then even these other ones refer to it being not white like brown and that kind of like freaks me out because obviously there's a lot of people using mm, a version of heroin that has a lot of um like just excess crap in it it's cut with other stuff it's not just cut it's just that it's impure so it Mm. literally looks brown or black like it's a chunk it looks like i think it's called like brown tar heroin or black tar heroin it literally looks like a chunk of tar uh mm. Anyways, so the drug affects the brain by binding to receptors in the brain, and these receptors include those relating to pain and pleasure, as well as heart regulation, sleeping, and breathing. Wow. So some of the other side effects, um, other than the obvious euphoria, are dry mouth, flushed skin, your limbs will start to feel heavy, you could experience nausea, intense itching. And something called being on the nod, which basically means coming in and out of semi-consciousness, which honestly, like, I get that you're high, but that sounds awful. <laughs> like, that, Yeah. I would hate that. Yeah. Definitely heard about people passing out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel yeah. like that's obvious. <laughs> but I thought that was the goal, the goal right? It's that you spend the whole time mm. pretty much, like, zonked out. But um, who knows? Not me. I just read the Wikipedia article, okay? Not me. I've watched some YouTube videos. Not me. I'm a square. I don't do drugs. (laughs) Um, It's still used medically, and similar drugs like Oxycontin and Vicodin are all opioids with similar effects. So you can snort it, smoke it, and inject it. And considering all the dangerous stuff it's sometimes cut with, like fentanyl and starch, and milk powder? What? Yeah. I mean, it's also cut with things like sugar and caffeine, which aren't, like, completely blowing my mind with the idea of, like, injecting that. But the starch thing and the milk powder thing, that strikes me as very, very bad for your blood, right? Like, right in your vein. Yeah. So I was like, why wouldn't it be more common to take it orally? Because that's on rank to just, like, possibly put starch in your blood. So heroin, if taken orally, will be digested as morphine and doesn't offer the same euphoric rush. Oh. And it also, it's also like the way you administer it, I'll get to it later, but the way you administer it affects um, your level of addiction, basically. 
So apparently if you are opiate naive, you will absorb a much lower percentage through oral administration. So like if you're not regularly already on opiates, then your body just doesn't absorb it as much, which makes sense because I was given Oxycontin in the hospital to help me sleep through my pain and it was so useless. I wish they had just given me Tylenol. Like it didn't do anything. Whoa. So taking heroin orally also means it takes about a half an hour for the high to kick in, whereas injection can get you high in seconds. And smoking even faster, although the drug loses concentration if you smoke it. And how quickly you receive a high from a drug can affect how likely you are to become addicted to it. So there are clinical studies to see if heroin actually gives a better high than morphine. With the theory being that the the 6-MAM derivative that I talked about earlier adds something else to the high or makes the high better. Mm-hmm. Um, but the studies suggest that the effects are actually the same and participants had no preference between the two. Both drugs were administered intravenously, though, so that obviously affects how quickly it runs through your system, right, and enters the brain. Mm-hmm. So... How would you die from heroin? So obviously, often overdoses happen because the strength and purity of heroin is unregulated and unpredictable, and so someone takes a higher dose than they are expecting, or because they haven't taken the drug in a while and are unaware of their body's lowered tolerance. Because if you haven't taken it for a while, you, the way it's affected your brain will, will go back to normal, mm-hmm. and you'll take a dose that's higher than you're able to tolerate. Typically, an overdose will cause your heart rate to drop and your breathing to slow or stop altogether, cutting off the oxygen to the brain. It can also cause death if it interacts with other depressant drugs like benzodiazepines and alcohol, or because nausea and vomiting are common side effects of heroin, an unconscious person can also just die by choking on their vomit, Yeah, which all of this is tragic obviously but that one's really like it's like it's obvious and it's also like oh that sucks Mm -hmm. um it's also speculated that deaths attributed to heroin could also have been the result of allergic reactions to quinine which is often used to cut heroin so it's not even the heroin yeah so an overdose can be treated with an injection or a nasal spray of something called naloxone naloxone which have you seen knives out yes yes finally (laughs) something we both watched (laughs) i know it's rare it's so good it really is and so that whole like scene where she's just realized she's given him an overdose of morphine and is looking for the thing that will treat it she's looking for the naloxone naloxone (sighs) Of course, Christopher Plummer just gets to call it Naxo stuff, because that's all I want to call it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But basically, it is an opioid antagonist and induces the opposite of heroin. So it increases the heart rate and reverses the depression of the central nervous system. I didn't fully understand the pharmacology of either drugs, to be honest, but if I was reading correctly, I believe Naxa stuff to be derived from morphine as well as heroin obviously because they both are lipophilic 
and they bond to the same opioid receptors in the brain. So the half-life of naloxone in your body is lower than heroin, so it might need to be administered more than once to allow the body to metabolize the opioid and recover from the overdose. But so it blocks it, essentially. Yeah, and it. I think there is something about allowing it to... Yeah, it blocks it and picks up the nervous system. Um, mm. And also, if you... I mean, it has some side effects, but if you're not, if a person hasn't taken any opioids and then you administer this naloxone to them, it shouldn't really affect them at all. So even if you're like mistaken about oh. whether or not they're overdosing or something. Interesting. Um, okay. the, the side effects only happen as a response to interacting with the with heroin or the opioid. So also, fun little fact, the recommended shelf life of naloxone may be marked as 18 to two, 18 months to two years. However, studies have shown it can still be effective 10 to 12 months past its recommended expiration. So little little nugget of knowledge there. Potentially a life-saving nugget. Yep. And naloxone was only patented in 1961. So Whoa. I don't really know. You know, at the end of the episode, I'm not, like, sure if we're supposed to believe that Thomas dies or if he survives. Um, oh, yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know if we know. But this form of treatment wouldn't have been available, probably, and oh, I'm wondering, I mean, maybe they could have, like, if she was administering heroin orally, it wouldn't have been such a high dose, and it, I mean, maybe if, like, you're trading a depressed nervous system, they could have just given him adrenaline. I don't know what we're supposed to think, really, there. What options would have possibly been open to them in treating a heroin overdose? Would they have been able to, like, pump his stomach? Ooh, yeah, that makes sense, because it would take a long time to d- digest. Maybe. At least a half an hour, as I said. Right? Yeah, well, they would at least try, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So after wading through all of the medical and addiction service sites, I finally found the history, which is the interesting stuff. Yeah. So the opium poppy, or also called the breadseed poppy, had been cultivated in Mesopotamia as far back as 3400 BC. Wow. So three millennia before Christ. So like yeah, five millennia ago. Um, wow. By the 19th century, people had already kind of been looking at it, and they had they had isolated um, morphine and codeine. Wow. But the earliest form of diamorphine was first developed by an English chemist named C.R. Alder Wright in London in 1874. So he sent the compound to another scholar named Pierce, who administered the drug to dogs and rabbits and noted the symptoms um, a lot of them were like the ones I already we already said, um, lower heart rate, etc. But also that their body temperatures lowered by four degrees, which I thought was interesting. Nothing came of that um, invention or discovery until about twenty years later. Felix Hoffman, a chemist working at the German pharmaceutical company named Bayer, independently created the same drug. Oh my gosh! Didn't know that it had been made before. He and his supervisor were actually trying to produce codeine, which was similar to morphine but less addictive and less powerful, and instead produced diamorphine, which was nearly twice as strong as morphine. Wow. So 
they didn't really that's their goal missed the target <laughs> uh yeah that's a big that's a big miss so bayer gave it the more commercial name heroish meaning heroic and strong in german and in 1895, began marketing it with the trademark name heroin as an over-the-counter cough suppressant that would be a non-addictive substitute for morphine. <gasps> they continued to market it as non-addictive for over 20 years. Oh my god. So. <laughs> that is awful. It's kind of a bad look. Yeah. But I mean... I mean, you could blame it all on them, but it is true that people were already, like, getting hooked on morphine at the time. So, mm. it's not, like, completely their fault, but, like... They were trying to help, but they instead made something more addictive. Well, they also clearly did not, like, do any long-term research into this. Yeah. They were just like, let's run with it. So, wow, that's 1895. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right yeah. on the dot. Like, sometimes I'm... Like, when we started this, I did not think that it was going to be, like, dead on by year. I thought there was going to be sort of, like, oh, this happened technically in, like, 96, but we're seeing it in 93 or something, right? No, this is, like, dead on. Wow. So, um, the coolest fact, I don't know if this is cool, it was, like, the most, like, interesting to me, is that at the 1919 Treaty of Versailles, after the German defeat in World War I, Bayer lost some of its trademark rights to heroin. As in, then heroin was like like their brand name for this drug. Yeah. And now it was no longer that, right? They didn't have it. Yeah. They also lost oh. trademark rights to aspirin. Oh. And then in 1914, U.S. legislation began to be passed restricting the use of diamorphine. And in 1925, the League of Nations banned it. However, the first designer drugs began to be developed to fill the demand for heroin, and many were analogs of heroin, and in 1930, the League of Nations also banned those. All this was some of the very first times drugs were being outlawed or legally restricted by the government, or by wow. allied governments, I guess. Yeah. Wasn't, was this around the similar time of the Prohibition as well in the States? Oh, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's a thought. I'm not 100 on the exact years. I'm only thinking of that because I recently watched, like, a, a YouTube video about the Prohibition. Yeah, so the Prohibition was between 1920 and 1933. So, yeah, and it it was similarly, like, where they were banning the sale, manufacturing, transportation, etc. of, like, alcohol and drugs. So, obviously, a lot of famous people have um, interacted with heroin in the last mm. century. Lots of jazz singers became addicted to heroin. And, mm. of course, as we know, later rock stars from, like, the 60s and 90s. So, Billie Holiday and Ray Charles were, um, mm. they interacted with the drug. Um, Janis mm. Joplin, John Lennon, Eric Clapton, Sid Vicious, Kurt Cobain... James Taylor. That one kind of surprised me. I don't know why. But James Taylor, Keith Richards, and of course River River Phoenix mm. all had had interactions with the drugs. That is um my research. Wow. Amazing. Well, I thought the coolest honestly, the coolest little nugget was that Bayer 
marketed it and chose the name. Yeah. And like the origin of the name is so silly to me. But it was like this is heroic. our heroic. This is our commercialized version of heroin. Here's heroin for you and your family. <laughs> and now it's like we <laughs> wouldn't it's such like a I don't know, sometimes like the origins of names, especially of drugs or or things like that, are so uh-huh. not what you expected, right? Yeah. That it derived from a German word. Or like since I chose <laughs> sure. to um research I've been singing that song. <laughs> you know that song? Oh. And I remember my friend from camp was talking about how she wrote that that lyric of um You Are My Heroine on her shoe. Yeah. And her teacher uh got mad at her and told her to get rid of it. And it's like they're not even spelled the same. <laughs> obviously hello hero and heroine oh my god but get with it yeah me who only lives through um only learns information through television and movies (laughs) (laughs) so also just thinking about train spotting and then even in like anna karenina which is set in like the 1870s anna karenina is becoming addicted to morphine or laudanum is what they would have called it right yep and so, like, that was already in circulation as, like, a, oh, yeah. it's just to help you sleep. Yep. That was in A Great and Terrible Beauty. Isn't that some of what Sherlock Holmes as well? I think Sherlock Holmes is addicted to cocaine. Ah, uh, okay. Which isn't like... I don't know. I've never read it. <laughs> Which is also bananas. Like, <laughs> that they're just, like, casually, like, oh, yeah. Uh, drugs. The wonder drugs of the time. Did you look up any other tidbit i didn't yeah no i didn't i thought kind of like this one was a bit hard of little like name drops or easter eggs Mm -hmm. it seemed like they were much more going in for like the homosexual catholic yeah like the social dilemma Mm -hmm. going on which is way more vague and it doesn't have a wikipedia Mm -hmm. article that you can (laughs) say concisely (laughs) well thank you for joining us you can Find us on Twitter at Murdoch Pod and on Instagram at Murdoch Podcast. And next week we'll be doing episode six, which is called Let Loose the Dogs. I am so enjoying watching this. Can't wait to watch more. Good. I was, yeah, there's so much to get through. <laughs> it's good that you're actually <laughs> liking it. We'll be here for a while. Okay, until next time. Have a good week, everyone.